Hello and welcome to the second edition of Interfacing Language, a podcast on syntax, semantics, and other stuff. This podcast was recorded in the framework of an introductory seminar on event semantics at the Humboldt Universität zu Berlin. The course was taught by Dr. Fabian Martin, who is also the one who encouraged us to do this podcast. In this episode, we talk to Professor Manfred Kifka. He's the director of the Leibniz Center for General Linguistics in Berlin. He also holds a professorship at the Institute for German Linguistics. Manfred Kifka is one of the most influential people in the realm of semantics, pragmatics, and language typology. His works have been an inspiration to many, and he's still currently the principal investigator of several research projects. As always, you will find references that are relevant to this podcast in the show notes. Also, we inserted timestamps to this episode, so you can easily move between the questions that you find most interesting. We're delighted to have you on our podcast, Professor Krivka. Thank you for taking the time. You're welcome. What would be your stance on universals in linguistics in general and in semantics especially? Oh, that's a very big question. <laughs> I'm not very, very prepared uh, with that, but I do think that there are certain uh, cognitive universals. Uh, we humans are not all that different, even though we live in different environments, cultural, natural, and so on. Uh, but we all have some notion of causality, for example. We, we do have a notion of, of liquid and um, solid and gaseous substances. Uh, we do have some notion of extents, uh, that one extent can be sort of smaller or larger than another one. So, uh, and this is important for many, if not all cultures. And so many cultures will develop um, things to, uh, will not only develop certain words to talk about these things, but also certain uh, grammatical categories. Like for example, it's amazing that probably every language has some way of, of distinguishing the grammar of, of animate beings and the grammar of inanimates. And this can be quite different, but uh, there are, for example, very few languages that don't distinguish question words like who and what. There are a few, Latvian, for example, um, Yeah, I think so, Lithuanian and uh, Latvian, but um, generally even languages that don't have any gender or so do at least that. And there are many other things where you see animacy as something that determines how things are realized in grammar. So, and it's obvious why, because living beings um, do different things, um, are involved in different phenomena and so on in, than um, things that don't live, even though it's, it might be o only a statistical tendency, but uh, it is so important. This is just a very simple um, uh, observation. Same, for example, with uh, liquid and solid. You know, we do have mass nouns and count nouns. We don't have in German uh, or English specific, a specific class for liquid things, but, um, but there are languages that have special verbs, but we do have verbs like drink or so that refer to liquid as a feature. And I wouldn't be astonished that uh, if we would find out that, that nearly any language has some distinction somewhere there. 
many scholars stay agnostic when it comes to conceptual base of our brain and its relation to semantic structure. And we already mentioned quite a few points, like mass nouns or count nouns, where we could establish such a connection. So yeah. Yeah, I can say something about that. Uh, I think it is very important to establish these connections um, and uh, but do it in a right way. There was a kind of unfortunate development within um, semantics um, where in general, I think semantics is luckier than syntax in terms of, of, of formation of schools and so on. But there is this one uh, a direction generally called um, uh, cognitive semantics or cognitive linguistics, um, which takes these connections uh, as very basic. And then there's something called formal semantics, a term that I actually don't like, um, uh, which um, concentrates on, on things that are more general and are, um, you can you know, observe certain properties above these distinctions living or non-living creatures and so on, um, or living creatures and, and objects and so on. Uh, but um, the methods uh, that were developed are quite different. Uh, so cognitive uh, linguistics um, often doesn't like formal approaches for some reason that I don't quite understand. And um, quite a number of people working in formal semantics are so fascinated but, uh, uh, by things that, that uh, 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 cut across um, differences in the ontology that they are happy to work in this area and they do wonderful stuff, but um, uh, then they might sometimes even belittle things like these differences. So uh, it's my impression that these feel field should actually come together and um, and uh, cognitive linguistics has a lot to profit from formal semantics, uh, thinking about uh, compositionality and so on, which hardly happens there. And uh, I think formal semantics has a lot to profit from looking at, um, at basic ontological differences where I don't mean ontological in the, in the sense of philosophy, but more in the sense of, well, what Emon Bach meant with natural language ontology. And whether you think would it be possible to establish such a correlation between semantic structure and the conceptual base of our brain related directly to event structure? So there is a tool that uh, goes back to Richard Montague, actually. Uh, this tool is to uh, uh, assume something like meaning postulates, um, which means that um, that the uh, uh, entities that that people assume in uh, in uh, formal semantics uh, don't just are uh, entities without any features, but there are certain basic relations between them. And one can express this by something like meaning postulates or by assuming uh, certain structures like at least uh, some formation structure. This is actually something that I learned when I was a student. I had the luck uh, of being a student of Godard Link, uh, 
back in the late 70s and early 80s, uh, who came back from the States with Montague Glamour in his backpack, uh, and he was very excited about that. Uh, but he also was very much interested in mass and count distinctions, and he uh, introduced for us at least this notion of some individuals. And so you see that, that when you assume a universe with structure, then um, you can use the structure for doing, for modeling semantic phenomena. So for example, you can have a distinction between animate and inanimate beings in your universe, or a distinction between um, longish beings and beings that are not longish, that are flat. And so you have something that many classifier languages uh, would see as relevant in their grammar uh, and so on. So one has to have uh, assume in addition uh, to these featureless entities that typically are assumed in formal semantics as a kind of simplification, uh, entities with certain features that um, that uh, uh, yeah, come with certain properties. And so this is, I think, what is actually quite easy to do. Uh, but I didn't talk about events yet. <laughs> events are uh, also some kind of entities. Yeah, it's just like uh, like uh, objects and liquids and so on. We also have events and they have a different um, relation to space and time. There is a very nice uh, paper by Eddie Seemark uh, for ontologies. I don't know whether you still know about that. It's really interesting. So he has four kinds of, of entities and events are just one kind of entity um, that is, is different from objects and different from masses and so on. Um, um, it's, uh, it's the spatial temporal properties that are different with events. And of course, uh, just as we distinguish between eat and drink, according to whether the substance is solid or liquid, uh, we have uh, predicates like happen, and happen we use for events. Yeah, a rainfall happens, but a person doesn't happen. Yeah, for example, so you see that even in the lexical semantics, we do make these distinctions here. Thank you for that example. I'm always really amazed when when we see how concepts like uh, classifiers or selection for certain pro semantic properties also feature in, in our languages facts we even we as linguists don't always yeah for classifiers that. for example we all know about languages like chinese that they have maybe 50 or 80 classifiers that often refer to the shape or size or whatever of objects. But there are also about five or seven or so classifiers for events. Um, so where English uh, only has the one classifier times. So she cuffed five times. Yeah, Chinese would have um, a number of different event classifiers that refer to the, the specific qualities of the event. Something, by the way, not really very, very well researched, at least last time I looked, but this is several years ago. I didn't find a lot about that. So I think we're ready to, to go into one of your papers right now. And I know that Ivona has a question prepared there. Yes, my first question is closely related to the previous one. As you noted in the paper, the origins of Talisity model theoretic semantics is usually considered as opposed to cognitive semantics. However, you do not see the strict demarcation line between the two approaches. This paper was written more than 20 years ago. Uh, could you tell us if your opinion has changed over the years and how? 
might have changed on specific points of the analysis, but not in a general idea of, of um, drawing ontological differences into semantics. Uh, yeah, I must admit, I haven't read this paper now for at least 10 years. I'm not really working on event semantics right now, not because I don't find it interesting, but there's so many other things that are interesting too. But uh, basically this was an attempt to, to generalize what I did in my dissertation. This was about, about um, the way how certain events expressed by verbs interact with objects, like for example, to drink, a glass of tea, I'm drinking tea right now, um, and uh, to see a glass of tea. So the drinking of the tea interacts with the tea in a different way than the seeing of the, you know, of the tea. And this has grammatical consequences. Now in this um, uh, 98 paper, I think it was, um, I was interested in the notion of path, a kind of general notion of path, uh, uh, because we have similar phenomena in say walk towards the castle and walk to the castle, walk towards the castle uh, is not necessarily limited. Walk to the castle is limited. Uh, so there is a natural endpoint. And this notion of natural endpoint is very important, I think, in the grammar of at least many languages, maybe not all languages. Um, and so natural endpoints can come out in quite different ways. And uh, I actually had great fun. Uh, I should say that um, that um, when I think about it, I was always interested in these mapping properties. Yeah, when I say I drank a glass of tea in one hour, then the the parts of the drinking are mapped to the parts of the tea. Yeah, so these these mappings uh, yeah, are very crucial, and with with paths in general, you have these mapping properties. Uh, yeah, when you walk to the castle, uh, the event is mapped to locations. Yeah, you move towards the castle. Um, and of course you can measure events. You say, you can say, um, I walked for a mile, yeah. Uh, but then I I noticed it's it's very obvious that if you walk for a mile, it's not necessary that you walked a mile. That the distance of A to B is a mile because you can walk in all kinds of ways. Um, and so I had these ideas of uh, I I think I called this Alcatraz movement. Uh, so the the prisoners on the island of Alcatraz, which now is a tourist destination can walk a mile on this tiny island, but they have to walk in circles and they can walk a mile by uh, going forwards and backwards and forwards and backwards and so on. So the mapping of the event is not straightforward, uh, is not a straightforward mapping to uh, distances. Yeah. And you have uh, other kinds of, of paths. You can, for example, increase um, the temperature of water. So heated, uh, Mary heated the water by 10 degrees. Yeah. Um, and uh, again, you could see different ways of heating the water so that the total amount is 10 degrees. But at the end, maybe because you 
let the water cool down uh, all the time, the, the water is only two degrees hotter than before or so. So, and uh, these generalizations, this was something that I found interesting uh, in that paper. Thank you. In the same paper, you distinguish between two types of predicates, cumulative and quantized. Can yes. you please elaborate on this distinction and how it is related to the extensive measure function that you introduce? Okay, yeah, uh, this actually goes back to my dissertation. Um, so the notion of cumulative predicates goes back to Quine, uh, at least maybe it's even older, but in Word and Object, a book that is actually very interesting to read um, from 1960 and I happened, well, I was in Stanford for one year and um, in the, in the, um, uh, in the center of advanced study. And I found out that I had the same uh, office as, as Quine had about 30 years before. I was very amazed by that. So anyway, so uh, uh, Quine made this, uh, had this notion of a cumulative predicate. So a, a cumulative predicate is something like water. If you have water here and water here, the sum will be water again. Yeah. Uh, but if you have, say, a liter of water here and a liter of water there, the predicate a liter of water will not uh, apply to the sum of these two entities. Yeah. Same with, you have apples here, you have apples there, the sum will be apples again. But if you have two apples here and two apples there, the sum will not fall under two apples again. Yeah. And the first is called cumulative and the second is called well, I called it quantized because there was no proper term on the market back then. Um, and so one can define a quantized predicate as a predicate that when it applies to an object, then it doesn't apply to a proper part of that object anymore. And um, I think language is quite peculiar about um, keeping track of whether something, whether a predicate is cumulative or whether it's quantized. So for example, uh, you can say something like um, um, 100 meters of wool. Yeah, that's fine. Or you can say something like 100 grams of wool is fine too. Uh, but you cannot say 100 meters of 100 grams of wool. That's not possible, yeah. Uh, you can say, this um, this ball of wool is 100 meters long and has a weight of 100 grams. That's fine. But there you do two separate predication steps. That's fine, but you cannot do it in one go somehow. Um, and so this means that these measure constructions like 100 meters of X or 100 grams of X don't want to have something in the position of X that is already quantized. Yeah, they need something that is cumulative. And this is very essential. And you see something similar with uh, event predicates as well. Um, and so it seems that language shies away from measuring the same thing twice in one act of reference. Yeah, <laughs> it's nearly, uh, it's quite spooky because it reminds one sometimes of of quantum physics or, or physics or so. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to stress this point, but it's 
it's probably a coincidence, but uh, it's it's quite funny, I think. Thank you very much. I think Frederick has some further questions. Also regarding measure functions, uh, one of your main, well, I wouldn't even say hypothesis because everybody accepted it as, as a fact and still refers to your work um, regarding that. So when we talk about incremental theme verbs, um, consumption verbs, for example, in what way do these measure functions or also the direct objects contribute to the semantics of the event structure and to the temporal constitution of verbal mm -hmm. expressions? Well, um, with, with incremental theme verbs, uh, which is not really a class, but when you uh, understand the relation of a event and a constituent of the event, a Davidsonian constituent, like a theme, it's typically a theme, yeah? It is a, uh, it is a theme. Um, then very often you have uh, this relation that a part of the whole event or a part of the larger event corresponds to a part of the object that is subjected to the event, like with drink a glass of tea. Yeah. So the sips are related to the parts of the tea. Yeah. Um, and similar similarly with watch a movie. Yeah. So the parts of the watching are related to parts of the movie. Yeah. In certain cases, like with see. Uh, to see something, you can see um, a car and you don't see, uh, and the seeing event is not necessarily conceptually related to the parts of the car. Of course, you can scan a car and then parts of the seeing uh, is, well, are related to parts of the car, but you don't have to do this. Uh, but once you you have a sentence like, and I think this I used in my dissertation, uh, we went on a safari and we saw 17 lions in two hours. Yeah, so you have a a, a time frame adverbial in two hours. We know that these time frame adverbials need a quantized event predicate because otherwise they are pragmatically odd. I can uh, uh, tell more yeah, about that. Yeah, and so therefore, C17 lions has to be interpreted as a quantized event predicate, yeah, because otherwise the sentence would be pragmatically odd. How can you uh, understand C17 lions as a quantized event predicate? Well, if you don't see the 17 lions in one full go, yeah, you see them in some distributed way. You see two or three lions there, then uh, you go on with your safari car and then you see two more lines there and you see five lines there. And at the end of the two hours, you've seen 17 lines. So you have to have seen the 17 lines in an incremental way. Yeah? This doesn't mean that the verb C is an, is an incremental theme verb, but uh, you can understand probably any verb in such a way that an argument can, uh, an extended ar uh, argument like 17 lines, uh, can have a incremental relationship to the event. Yeah. And if, if the grammatical frame where the event predicate occurs enforces a quantized interpretation, then this sort of trickles down to the way how the event relates to the entities. Yeah? 
and the same holds uh, by the way for for certain subject relations uh, as well like you can say um, 73 guests arrived in two hours yeah and then you see arrive uh, which is subject role in a kind of incremental role or relation to the event it may lead us further away but already mentioned pragmatic blocking of in this case eventualities where do you see the role of pragmatics in, in relation to to semantics and to linguistics in general because well at least from a syntactic point of view it often gets omitted mm -hmm. or oh, yeah. mm -hmm. put on another page than linguistics it's a, it's it's i think extremely important because it really interfaces with something uh, with semantics and then with the notion of grammaticality uh, in such a fundamental way that uh, often we think that certain expressions are ungrammatical uh, but they are only uh, pragmatically odd in a systematic way yeah and so for example uh, take um, take say uh, Mary saw lions in an hour which is odd, I think, yeah, because I used a a plural lions, uh, and not uh, which is a cumulative uh, predicate here. Now you can say this is a a purely syntactical phenomenon, yeah? and there are theories. So theories of the 70s and 80s. So Henk uh, Verkoy, for example, uh, Christa Platzak, that had some feature percolation mechanism that uh, said you cannot combine these. This is bad. Yeah. Uh, but I think what happens is uh, when you have uh, a sentence like, um, like Mary saw lions in two hours, the time frame adverbs like in two hours are informative if you, if you take a, a, a small span, uh, a time frame as possible. Yeah. You see this, for example, if you are you are able to run 100 meters in 15 seconds, then uh, you can also run 100 meters in 20 seconds. Therefore, in order to be informative, you will do an as small time frame as possible, um, and uh, of course also refer to your fastest running. Otherwise, you are not uh, informative. Yeah. So these time frame adverbs come with the, with the, with the pragmatics uh, of yeah, choose a as narrow span of time as possible. Yeah, but now this is fine if if the event that you want to delimit in this way uh, is a quantized event, like we saw seventeen lions in two hours, uh, because to see seven. Uh, 17 lions in this incremental way. Well, you see the first lion and then you see the 17th lion and a smaller event would not be C17 lions anymore. Uh, and so therefore you have this natural uh, size that a time frame adverb likes to focus on. Yeah, But when you have a cumulative predicate or a divisive predicate, yeah, then you can uh, get smaller and smaller uh, time uh, frames uh, and there's no limit at the end. Well, in the case of uh, we saw lions in two hours, this might be a single lion because the predicate lions 
applies to a single lion. And if you don't believe me, I can uh, argue for that. Uh, but then you would say we saw a lion or one lion in two hours. Yeah, then you would make this clear. You would not um, use a cumulative predicate because we don't want to to focus on the atoms of 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 cumulative predicates. We all know that cumulative predicates like apples and water and so on uh, refer uh, uh, that the entities have minimal parts, but we don't like to refer to them. Uh, in grammar, they are more of. Um, if you want to refer to them, we make this clear, like with um, with uh, classifiers uh, and so on. Yeah. So, and something that seems to be a a grammatical phenomenon actually is a pragmatic phenomenon. Yeah. And there are many many other cases like that. Yeah. Another case are, for example, negative polarity items. So the reason why I cannot say. Um, uh, John was ever in China is that uh, ever has a, a pragmatic structure that doesn't make sense in this in this environment uh, but in in a syntactic frame like um, uh, I doubt that John was ever in China or it is not the case that John was ever in China that's perfectly fine because there the specific pragmatic property of ever is fine it makes sense in some sense yeah, and uh, if you are if you are are interested in that, there is a very nice overview article by Marta Abruzan. Uh, just came out now in in um, in the Annual Review of Linguistics, um, uh, arguing for this kind of principle. So systematic, semantic, and pragmatic oddity leads to an impression of ungrammaticality, uh, and that's I think quite exciting because. Once you have a purely syntactic theory about why these sentences are ungrammatical, I think you miss the mark. You don't see what's really going on. Well, yeah, that was very insightful, and I think we'll definitely take up that read. Um, my question is going to refer to something that you've already mentioned a lot, but maybe just to make the question more explicit. And it's based on um, something that you said at a conference around 19 years ago, I think, and also based on your um, paper that Yvonne talked about in Utrecht. Um, this was on a panel discussion. Uh, I'm not sure if you remember it. Maybe if, if I outline the point, uh, it will get back to you. It's something that we also talked about in the seminar. Um, so in the paper, you showed that it is misleading that particular events can be called TLIC or ATLIC and give the example of running. Now you gave the example of walking to the castle. And uh... um, that I saw that I that differed from Emon Bach's um, work on the algebra of events. And I had the pleasure of talking to Emon a lot about these things. So uh, Emon thought of, um, of a, a T-leak event of running, for example, and a T-leak event of running a mile uh, as some as two different events that span that can span maybe the same spatial temporal region, but these events were uh, different. They were conceptualized as two different uh, events. Yeah, and I thought no, they are the same events. Yeah, it's only that we can categorize events differently, and so. Um, of, so it's a difference on the level of the predicate or the property of 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 events. So look, 
there are the events of running a mile. This predicate uh, to run a mile falls or subsumes all events of the length of running a mile. Yeah? And there, there are the events of running. And all the events of running a mile also fall under the predicate of run. And many other events fall under run as well. So for example, each reasonably long part of running a mile is also an event of running. And events that are longer than running a mile are also events of running. Um, and uh, somehow it is as if, as if you would say something like, uh, well, I have an apple here and this apple is green. And so I have an apple and then I also have a green apple here. Yeah. But this sort of doesn't make sense. The green apple is the same thing as the apple. It just happens to um, fall not only under the more general predicate apple, but also under, yeah, under the more specific predicate uh, uh, green apple. It's a little bit like, um, like a, a ancient Chinese puzzle. There was this, this Chinese uh, philosopher and logician Kung Sun Lung, fourth century before Christ. This was the time when China was fragmented into many states and you couldn't export things from one state to the other, especially horses. You couldn't export horses, but Kung Sung Lung wanted to go from one state to another and he had a white horse with him and he convinced the, um, the border official that a white horse is not a horse. And Chinese invites this kind of, of, um, of fallacy yeah, because Chinese doesn't have classifiers, but it sort of reminded me a little bit like that. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I thought that that uh, the uh, difference between between uh, uh, between activities and accomplishments uh, should be one not on the level of the entities of the events themselves, but in the way how we classify them. I don't know whether this answers this issue. I think it does. Yeah. And I think we have a related question to this as well. In the same paper, you developed a theory that can predict whether a predicate is telic or atelic. Could you please elaborate on the tests that you created? I don't think I, I had any new test. I took the tests that, uh, that Wendler had and that Aristotle had in some sense, Aristotle didn't talk about the expressions, but about the, the entities, the activities and so on. I, 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 I honestly don't think that I, I had a single new test. Uh, but for example, one test is um, why is that with um, a test for activities is that you can combine them with um, time span adverbials like run a mile or run for two days. Yeah. And uh, you cannot say run a mile for half an hour. Yeah. Even though the running can be both a mile long and half an hour long, but you cannot say that. This is the same as with the wool example that I had um, at the beginning. And uh, so this is interesting. You cannot measure the same thing twice. Um, but then you can uh, reinterpret it. You can say, I ran a mile for uh, two years. Yeah. And then you mean I ran a mile every day for uh, two years and so on. So then this is possible. But what you do there is that you force a cumulative reading of run a mile. 
with this iterative way of um, running over and over again. Or you can also uh, sometimes interpret things as doing part of of something, a kind of um, of um, partial uh, interpretation. Yeah. So I I think I I explained the tests maybe at least in my view a little bit better than they have been explained before, but I I think I didn't invent anything new. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Maybe I did, but I forgot it, so this was not really so so important. Thank you very much. I think Honor and Frederick have, have some questions, some final questions. So leaving the field of event semantics, and you already mentioned Chinese, but I know that you also did fieldwork in Vanuatu, for example. So what are your, your insights from working with different languages and how did it mark you as a linguist or maybe also as a person working with that many different languages? Oh, this was very important actually. So, so with my dissertation work, uh, this was at the, at the, mostly at the department of, of uh, logic and philosophy in Munich uh, with Godard Link. So, so Godard was uh, into mass and count distinctions and so on and had very insightful uh, ideas there. And, um, and I thought about extending this to events. And there it was crucial that I knew about Slavic languages and about uh, your observations, like for example, in, in, in Polish by Anna Wierczbicka, uh, that uh, when they say something like, um, uh, Mary drank wine, when you change drank to the the perfective, then you get a definite interpretation of wine. Mary drank the wine. Yeah, and similarly in Finnish or Estonian, um, where you have um, uh, different cases for objects, the case can mark the the verb as perfective or imperfective. So with with accusative case, you get a perfective interpretation. With partitive case, you get a imperfective uh, uh, interpretation. And I thought that uh, this can be explained once you use this notion of incrementality and uh, these mapping uh, properties and uh, assume that there was a certain amount of grammaticalization of something that you find in many cases in, in, in a natural way. So knowledge about these phenomena was very, cru uh, was very uh, critical. Um, and, and the same maybe with uh, uh, classifiers and and how they work. Yeah, so I I don't speak Chinese. I uh, I learned Chinese for about half a year. It's a long time ago, uh, but it was very crucial to know a little bit more about Chinese than just to know that there are classifiers because these uh, uh, classification constructions can be quite different. Yeah, so I found it crucially important. Uh, to look uh, to know about other languages too, because they often manage to set a foothold in in ontological distinctions that your own language doesn't make. You know, your own language that you know, or your languages that you know, uh, make certain distinctions that are relevant, but these languages uh, make distinctions somewhere else, and quite often they uh, pop up as being relevant for your own language as well, like. Uh, animacy or something like that. So I think this was quite uh, important. 
and of course finding out things uh, by yourself in a language by doing field work in a in an underdescribed language is important for the field absolutely uh, important and uh, it's a great intellectual challenge and you are the first to discover something it's really great <laughs> this doesn't occur all that often anymore nowadays i think we we read stuff and there's so much to read and uh, it's overwhelming and you might see something that is a little bit different than people have seen it before this might be satisfying but this joy of discovering something is really great the long journey through different fields of linguistics um, is there any must-read but forgotten recommendation for students on some article they should read oh. or maybe a paper or experience related to linguistics that changed your perspective on language? Well, that's a difficult question. I can uh, just point to one article that I still find an uh, extremely well-written article. This is by David Lewis, uh, General Semantics from 1970. David Lewis was a student of Montague. Uh, I had the pleasure of meeting David Lewis, I think, two or three times, once in, in, in Austin in 1988. He died 2001, I think. And uh, nearly everything that he wrote is deeply insightful and um, it's, it's always uh, a great enlightenment to read uh, David Lewis. Uh, but this article, uh, general semantics of 1970 you must sort of put your mind into that it's so much easier to read than montague's papers and it it covers a lot of ground things would be done differently nowadays in many cases but it's really astonishing uh, how much is in this one article so in, and it's it's not difficult to read so it's it's quite amazing so this i could recommend thank you so much for taking the time yeah uh, this is extremely insightful and we know a lot of things to read now. I think you make a good thing out of the situation in the seminar because I think under normal circumstances this wouldn't have happened. <laughs> no, probably not. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. Do you have any 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 very very last words that you want to finish up so people can finish with your voice and not ours? Maybe one more thing that I can add this uh, because you didn't touch uh, on that. Uh, this um, was not a, uh, yeah, a new test or so that, that I found, but a new phenomenon. This is in this paper about um, 4,000 ships passed through the lock last year. Yeah, I was really amazed that you can say that uh, talking about a small river where there's never 4,000 different ships that pass through this lock. And then uh, you see this kind of sentence all the time, like um, um, three million uh, tourists um, slept in Berlin last year. Now this year it will be fewer, I think. Um, uh, and uh, so you know then what this means, yeah, how things are counted, that you can count events by officially counting the participants and I find this amazing and just uh, and I stumbled upon that um, just by accident yeah so it's it's good to have their eyes open and and uh, be curious about the linguistic phenomena around you mm -hmm.